Coming up on Tech Nation, the late Jim Lair, longtime news anchor of the PBS NewsHour. He tells me about the tensest, most anxiety-ridden experience I have ever had interviewing anybody about anything. Today, we'll replay our 1998 Tech Nation interview. Then on Biotech Nation, the need for early detection of cancer. I speak with Cancer UK's Dr. Wendy Alderton about current research trends and Dr. Mike Fisher from Oncommune about their blood test for lung cancer. And we'll hear from Dr. Arthur Sands, CEO of Nurix Therapeutics, about their new approach to treating cancer. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. I was taking a lift the other day, and a few blocks from my home, the driver suddenly said, Oh, look, there's one of our driverless cars. I turned and saw a car with a contraption on its roof, which looked like a Google Map car with a decent paint job. There's a driver in there, right? I immediately asked. Oh, yes, said my driver, but he's not supposed to interfere unless something goes wrong. Then he takes over the steering wheel. He proceeded to demonstrate taking over the steering wheel, although he already had his hands on the steering wheel. So it was either a mock demonstration or I was missing something key about how a driver and a driverless car takes control. Even so, there's a bigger issue here regarding trust. And by that, I mean trust that this technology is really going to work. Day in, day out, ride in, ride out. In the three weeks into this very month, San Francisco has had four accidents with driverless cars. And in all four, the other guy was at fault. And by other guy, of course, I mean a real guy, and not a driverless attendant who was ready to take the wheel. It's hard to figure out what to do with this statistic, since we don't know how many driverless cars are running around, while we all suspect there are plenty of fender benders in San Francisco every day. Being human myself, I think there's a basic flaw in thinking that driverless cars' safety records will build trust in this technology. It's like looking at your beloved and considering marriage while reviewing the statistics on divorce. Look how many people stay married is not what leaps to mind. You might be swayed marginally, but we all know this matters little when the actual decision gets made. Once married, these statistics don't improve your confidence levels. While leaving the challenge of making driverless cars work to the many who have entered the field, I'm presuming that they will ultimately be successful. But that still begs the question, will the public accept it? Or will driverless cars become like segways? Take a tour of San Francisco in your driverless car. Given our hills and interesting streets, this may give everyone relief. Still, just what it will take to bridge this technology trust gap for everyone. Recently, I came upon another technology that just might do the trick. It was a not-yet-released three-dimensional display that showed what your driverless car was looking at in real time. 
Up to now, we've been asked to believe in the magic. But here, you can see what's going on around you as you're moving down the road. Look at all those cars and their distance away and how they're moving at different speeds and how close they are at every moment. I had a bonding experience. Hey, driverless car, you can see that car and I can see that car. But you're also seeing cars I don't even see unless I turn my head around and then I take my eye off the car ahead or the roadway or whatever. It was like a video game with an engrossing display. And my reaction was immediate. Hey, I need this all the time. Now I call that product acceptance before there's even a product. Driver's education is one thing. Now we might need passenger education and just a little more technology to make it all work. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what it was like when the Internet and the World Wide Web first became part of producing the news. I speak with the late Jim Lair, longtime executive editor and news anchor of the PBS NewsHour, about his experience as we replay our Tech Nation interview from 1998. Then on Biotech Nation, the early detection of cancer, potential blood tests for lung cancer detection, and a whole new approach for treating cancer itself. And now, Jim Lair. When it was first proposed to me that we have a website, the guy who did who runs our little company called McNeil Air Productions came to me and said, you know, PBS is interested and let's start a website. And I said, I have two questions for you. One, what is that and why do we need it? And so he told me what it was, and I was very skeptical about it, and it's been hugely successful. And now it's tied in more to the news hour than it used to be. It used to be they'd run their own forums, they do their own things, and now everything that they do on the website is related to what's been on the program or is about to be on the program, and it's gone through two or three enhancements in terms of what it looks like, and uh, it's even won a couple of awards. I mean, we have a staff of eight people that work on it full-time, and in addition, I mean, this is they're separate from the NewsHour staff, and it's become uh, tremendous in that way. And also, we get uh, audience reaction 
through the website, through email, and all that sort of thing. So it has made us. I've, it makes me feel closer to the audience. Is what uh, that's what's what's out there for us. That's what the end result has been, at least for me. Well, I noticed that uh, some of the interviews, for instance. First of all, I want to commend you that nothing on the on the home page said anything about Monica Lewinsky or any of that. That's true. That's <laughs> true. It was, it was a true. shock. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was for some of the interviews are both in audio. And the transcripts are there. That's right. And you know, it's it's very interesting. As soon as you know, for instance, in this show, they say, "Oh, got to put the audio out on the internet." And we're saying, "You're going to listen to an hour of audio <laughs> on the internet." I mean, I there had to have been too. several iterations when you're trying to figure out what to put out there I and know. in what format. I know, and that uh, fortunately, we have uh, really good people that make those kinds of decisions. I'm not involved in any of that and in terms of what who dis- of what they what what they decide to put audio on and what they decide. Some of them they do, some of them they don't. But you can, what's amazing to me is what the Internet has done is that if you uh, did not watch the news hour and uh, you want to know what, what's on there, I mean, you can essentially get it all if you're just, uh, you know, just wait a while. It's all there. Just like if you didn't read the New York Times, you can get the New York Times free on the Internet. It's uh, it's an amazing development, but still, there's a long way from being resolved as to what it's finally going to be when it ever ends, if it ever does end. Now, does it impact at all what you do on the show? No, 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 no. Except um, the only way it impacts us uh, would be that I, I we study the reaction that we get, and that 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 involves things that come in on the internet. Uh, just, but it would be—it's just more of what we already were getting, which was uh, uh, mail from people and telephone calls. Uh, but we have a daily distribution of the internet reaction to last night's program, which of course was never possible before. And um, and we talk about it, and you—you you just have to take it. You have to—you have to know what you're doing, because if you don't know what you're doing, you can be over influenced by it. Well, Jim, I, I read your whole book, and I was really glad to see that you didn't include what I call the gratuitous. Email subplot. Seems like every novel I've read lately. You know, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. It it is. It is. There's another gratuitous thing where people standing around, all of a sudden someone walks through them with a cell phone and says something, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's supposed to be very poignant. Used to be people put embedded quotes at the beginning of chapters, but now we we have that. I also got to tell you, there wasn't any sex in it, Jim. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what they say, write about what you know about. You asked for that. <laughs> I invited you. Again. Invited that. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of sex, this is my little segue here. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, you know, I'll be interviewing somebody, and you know, people like Edward Teller leap to mind. You know, you're in there, and you're, you know, it's this is it. You know, and uh, people listening later say. Well, he said something. You know, weren't, why weren't you all over that? You know, and you're like, well, you had to be there. You know, right. and how is it that you came to have scheduled a television interview the day with President Clinton, the day that Monica Lewinsky scandal broke? It was just sheer brilliance on my part. <laughs> just the luck of that. We had this interview had been been we had been talking about it for months it had been already delayed once because of the president's schedule and it was designed as a kind of a preview to the state of the union and the state of the union was like on the 21st i mean on the uh, 26th i think or something like that this interview was going to be done on the 21st and i had worked and worked and worked on all kinds of questions about bosnia and all this sort of stuff and um, and then lo and behold that morning 
I woke up and there was that story in the Washington Post. And then I spent most of the day worrying about whether or not this interview was going to be scrubbed or not, whether we were going to have it, and if so, what did I ask, and if so, how did I ask it, how much did I stay with it. And and for once, when I sat down, when the interview finally began about 3 o'clock that afternoon in the Roosevelt Room, I had no idea what his answer, answer was actually going to be. He, they'd issued some little perfunctory kind of written statement denying it. But uh, many hours had gone by since then, so uh, it was the tensest, most anxiety-ridden experience I've ever had interviewing anybody about anything. And the room was absolutely silent. There were all kinds of people in there, in that room, including our technicians and Secret Service people and whatever, and nobody was even breathing. Uh, it was, uh, it, I've never been, been through anything like that before. Did a bell ring in your mind when he said there is no sexual relationship? No, it didn't, and that's my only regret of the interview. It wasn't until I got back to the office that everybody said to me, you know, he said is. He kept saying, the president, you kept saying, have you ever, and he kept saying is. And uh, I had not picked up on it. And the, my excuse for that, or my reason, is that there are three reasons. First of all, the context of the interview. It seemed implausible to me there, uh, that that this would have even have, have occurred, okay? And the only reason I was asking about it was because of the story and it said that Kenneth Starr, the independent counsel, was investigating. Um, but there had been no prelude of rumors, published or otherwise, about this incident. So, and, and that, so that was my state of mind, asking the questions in the first place. And then his body language, plus his words themselves, plus the words themselves, it all added up to me as a blanket denial. And so when he said is, I didn't really... You know, it didn't it didn't mean anything to me. And um, it was uh, fortunately within 10 minutes after the interview, uh, he did another thing and said, no, 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 I didn't. I wasn't playing games. I didn't mean is. Uh, I mean, I didn't mean is as a as a dodge. Uh, he 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 said, no, uh, uh, that I had I have never had sexual a sexual uh, improper sexual relationship with this young woman. So uh, anyhow, but I that's my only regret in the interview. Well, you know, I'm really glad to hear it. I'm sorry that you have a regret. But, you see, I always figured if I was somebody like Jim Lair, this wouldn't happen to me. <laughs> happens to everybody. Happens yeah. to everybody. I had uh, – well, well, never mind. I mean, I, I, I make mistakes all the time. I, usually I don't make them quite – it's quite that, those kinds of settings. But, you uh, know, yeah, because we ended up broadcasting, giving that interview live to everybody. So, uh, you know, all the ships at sea and uh, everybody got to see me make that mistake. Again and again and again. And again. All right. They're broadcast. They're on, on, I'm on book tour now. And at every television show I'm on, they, they run, run that interview again. They don't. And, they, and they, he says is. And somebody says, why didn't you pick up on it? Thank you. Still no. Still no. You're listening to Tech Nation, Americans and Technology. I'm Moira again, and my guest today is Jim Lair. You know him as the host of the News Hour with Jim Lair, broadcast on over 300 PBS stations daily, as well as to 33 countries. His new thriller is called Purple Dots. Well, no gratuitous email, no cell phones, no sex, but it's still a pretty big thriller. And what I what I enjoyed about it was the sort of the the Senate uh, hearings, the relation, the politics, the the relationship between the standing bureaucracies and that type of thing. Um, how much of that did you just kind of make up, and how, how much of it might have been a seed of truth? In it? Well, um, all fiction has to have a seed of truth or it doesn't work. So there is truth 
in a uh, general sense. I mean, I did not pattern this after a specific hearing or a specific confirmation. This involves some a man who's been nominated to be head of the CIA. He's number two now. I didn't pattern this after a specific situation. But I've covered a lot of confirmation hearings, uh, and so all of that is seeped in and then that seeped back out in a form of another story. But I was just trying to tell a story. I wasn't trying to... Uh, draw some heavy conclusions. One of the main themes, obviously, are the purple dots. And if there's one fascination everyone has, it's the one of the four divisions of CIA is literally called science and technology. Exactly. And uh, is there anything to uh, any of this? Well, the purple dot was created by some CIA people in conjunction with some FBI people, and the CIA lab, the Science and Technology Lab, the CIA, created these little, they're about the size of a dime, and they were made of a material that cannot be replicated. And um, they're on license plates of working CIA people, FBI people in Washington, so they won't get their cars towed. If they're suddenly they're following some spy or something, they have to suddenly park their car in front of a fire hydrant or something. They don't want to come out and have their car towed. And they used to, that used to happen to them all the time. So anyhow, they created these things. And then the word got, got around in a very secret, classified way. So other people wanted them, and it became the ultimate park. Think about it. I mean, you could park anywhere you wanted to in Washington if you had one of these purple dots because every police officer in every police dur- jurisdiction is told, you come across an illegally parked car, don't touch it, don't do anything, and tell you if it has a purple dot down in the lower left-hand corner. So uh, it, it's, it gets involved in the story because this one of the people who's in, who doesn't want this man to be confirmed says, look, you help me keep this guy from being confirmed, and I'll get you a purple dot, is what he says to somebody else. Now, your question was, is any of this true? The answer is no. <laughs> Jim Lair lies to you. Oh, no, excuse me. No, no, fiction. <laughs> fiction, fiction, I forgot. <laughs> now, we think of... Uh, Many journalists that we know, Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, you know, Ted Koppel, Sam Donaldson, uh, the list goes on. These are people who work for networks. Yet the news hour is produced by McNeil Lair Productions. I don't think most people understand that. How does that work? Well, McNeil Lair Productions is a company that Robert McNeil and I started several years ago. To to produce the news hour, we already had the news hour at the time. It was then called the McNeil Air Report. It was a half hour program, and to do other programs as well. In we but in co production with public television stations, uh, WNET in New York and WTA in Washington, and uh, it's uh, it was just a device to also do other programs and uh, and to go into business. That's what it boils down to. It is. The uh, but it's in it's a co-production with the public television stations. Now, I mean, this is sort of interesting. I mean, journalists are always saying we must be independent, and yet they're always employed by Absolutely. newspapers or whatever. This is sort of you know journalist businessman. You're exactly right, and you're one of the few people who's picked up on that. We really are about the only really independent news organization there is. Because even the, the uh, people at the public television stations, particularly WETA now in Washington, or the people at PBS, they leave us completely alone. We are, we are, I have yet to get a phone call in over 20, almost 25 years now we've been doing this program from anybody in public broadcasting saying, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, whatever, or from either any of our underwriters or whatever. It's uh, it's the best 
way to do journalism uh, that is possible. Uh, I, I can't. I have the best job there is and the best opportunity, and it's all because of this little idea that it's an independent, uh, independently run operation. But obviously, we are beholden to our audience, and if the public television stations don't like what we do, they can clearly not renew us and won't run us anymore. But uh, but in terms of day-to-day journalistic decisions, we are we have the right to be public broadcasting has given us the right to be wrong. And in journalism, if you don't have the right to be wrong. You're not going to be right very much because you're going to be afraid all the time that you're going to be wrong. There's something pretty clean about that. You, you don't have to go in and argue with your editor or argue with your you know, someone up the line. And I mean, your job isn't on the line. The thing is like, don't run us or you can lose a, uh, an underwriter or something. But those are much cleaner. You can say, take it or leave it. You'll continue to produce. Absolutely right. And if somebody is watching our program some night and doesn't like it, doesn't like something that we do, the person to blame is is me. I mean, I can't ever dodge. Say, oh well, the pressure from this or the, you know, Sammy Sue wanted me to do that. Billy Bob wanted me to do this and that, and it's tough out there. Forget it. I'm I'm completely responsible for everything that goes bad as well as for everything that goes good. And talking about independent, you're not just producing for public broadcasting. A uh, uh, C. Everett Koop, you produce for NBC, uh, The Wizard for the Disney Channel, mm-hmm. uh, so that you really see yourselves out here. Just these are conduits. That's right. We're just yeah, exactly right. And uh, we're we're uh, we produce uh, a, a variety of programs and got a lot of a lot of others uh, a lot of others uh, in the works. Now, certainly over the years, uh, technology, both um, in individual lives, you know, as well as sort of national and global all wherever you look technology is, has uh, has developed and certainly in the last 5 years the the digitization of america has emerged you know now we have 40 million adult americans on the internet we have uh of the kids under 21 90% of their schools are online 85% of anyone employed uses a computer I mean, and this all happened in the last few years we just look at the npr audience uh, 4 years ago only 25% of them used pcs now 80% do. Is that right? That's exactly that. right. Wow. New audience, 98 numbers. My goodness. When I look at that, I look at part of the story of America now is technology. Mm-hmm. Um, as a journalist, how much do you feel you need to know about technology? I need to know a lot more than I do know. We, we, um, we've had sense enough to bring in people who do know more. We're, we're trying our best to cover it. I, I also believe as a story, as a subject, I mean, your, your radio program is a perfect example of this. But I think as regular news, it should be covered more. And we now have set up a, a, a with a Pew, uh, for, with money from the uh, Pew Charitable Trust, a, a media information unit with, under Ter- Terrence Smith. And uh, part of it is to cover the press, but it's also to cover the whole gamut of the new ways we get information in this country. And because I think as an ongoing story, it is remarkable. You just laid it out perfectly. I mean, just just the, te- the way the technology has changed in the news business and how it affects the way you shoot film and how, or, or now no longer film, my goodness, that is really in another world, but tape and how, where you can, you can, uh, it's possible to get a live feed within minutes from anywhere in the world now, and using satellites and all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, it, it has changed uh, lighting. You know, it used to be to go out and shoot a, 
uh, a piece of news footage. You had to carry 12 lights and whatever. Now you do most of it's done with natural light. It's uh, uh, the editing process. These editing editing machines now. The the uh, avid editing machines are incredible. What you can do quickly and uh, uh, and that's going to even that's only all that's going to do is get even better and easier. And uh, it's. Uh, it's remarkable, and we're not. We have not done a good job. I'm talking about the news hour, and I don't think journalism generally has done a very good job of reporting technology because there are people like me, old people like me, in charge. <laughs> it's radio, they don't know. Jim. They don't know. Oh, no. They don't know that. Right? Uh, old people uh, uh, who are who are who who started as print reporters and uh, have come into television, you know, the back door and all of that and, and mistrusted it from the very beginning and have been re- didn't even want to use electric typewriters, much less computers. So the whole, we are not, I am not, uh, like, I, I, I'm not up on that subject as I am on politics, as I am on foreign affairs. And uh, so as a consequence, we have to bring in people and we have to do it better than we've been doing it as an ongoing reporting subject. But, you know, there's a flip side that I'm kind of like dovetailing with what you said earlier. You know, you're you're an independent producer, you know, and we're looking at this, you know, we're looking at conduits for delivering information, which has mm-hmm. now blossomed on the Internet. But you're a journalist first and foremost. That's your that's your trade, if you will. Sure. Now we have all these people leaping up on the Internet. Everyone's, you know, going to say the Drudge Report. We know about that. But it's like anybody can publish anything. Sure. How do we bring journalism back to the Internet? I think that's the crucial question for the future because um, – and I've heard all kinds of theories and I'll give you mine for what it's worth. I think that with all of this information that's available coming in from all directions, at first now we're in a stage where the gatekeepers – I mean people like me, editors of newspapers, executive producers of television programs, editors of magazines, producers of radio programs, all that – those people, well, we don't need gatekeepers. We got all this information. We'll just get it ourselves. Well, there's so much information out there. I think there's going to be a whole new family of gatekeepers that's going to have to be created because nobody, I don't care what your situation is, nobody has the time to sit in front of their computer screen 24 hours a day. So what it's probably going to do is going to, you're going to, it's going to be more tailor-made. In other words, you or and I will sit down in front of our computer and say, okay, now this is the kind of news I'm interested in, and this is the kind of news I want every day. I want to know the baseball scores. I want to know the three stock, only three. So I only have three stocks, so I want to know those readings. I want a, I want a, a wide, ri- wide range of opinion on, uh, on Europe. I don't care about Asia. In other words, you will tailor-make your own newscast or your – I mean, it eventually will be a newscast, and you will fit that in. And, and I would like it at uh, 6 a.m. when I wake up in the morning. And you will wake up, put it on, and it will be the, the, the newscast just for the Lara family. And it will come in from a variety of things. And let's say – I might even say, well, I want, uh, I want to know what, what did they have on the news hour last night. Oh, well, the, oh, they, oh, oh, they had Shields and Chico. Oh, well, I want to watch Shields and Chico. Well, what did Nightline do? Well, they had a wonderful little bit. Okay. In other words, they put the whole thing. It'll all be done that way. And somebody's got to put all that together. And those are going to be a new kind of gatekeeper because nobody can do this on their own. I mean, not every, everybody is not that interested. Those 40, 40 million people who, have, who are on the Internet are not 40 million people who, are, who have time to waste 
or time to use, excuse me, uh, going through everybody's website and putting every piece of information together. So who's going to do it? So there's going to be a new service that's going to be created. It hasn't been created yet. Well, you know, it's interesting. you agree with me? I absolutely agree with you. I think the first and foremost constraint that drives it or parameter that drives it is time. But I yes. think there's some other interesting things that are going to shape the new journalism. You've been listening to our 1998 interview with Jim Lair, the longtime executive editor and news anchor of the PBS NewsHour. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio, as well as other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show, it's Biotech Nation with the early detection of cancer, potential blood tests for early lung cancer detection, and a whole new approach for treating cancer itself. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation and our 1998 interview with Jim Lair, the longtime executive editor and news anchor of the PBS NewsHour. By the time we got to the end of the baby boomers, well, all 80 million of those baby boomers, in a remarkable show of restraint, gave birth to 76 million kids under 21. Mm -hmm. It's sort of interesting. It's about even. It really is. (laughs) Now, those kids under 21, I mean, they grew up in a time, you know, Rodney King. Videotaping. We grew up in a time where we didn't even know that FDR uh, came in uh, with braces and fell down on the floor of the Congress. One handicam would have taken care of that. Absolutely. These are kids that on the same week saw the cover of Newsweek and Time where uh, the McCoy uh, couple that gave birth to septuplets, one of those magazines gave her a digital uh, orthodonture job. I mean, these are kids who don't trust information. That's right. And I think that journalists, specifically as individuals, will start to have this sense not of journalism establishing the trust, but as individuals, you are the trust. Mm -hmm. And whoever you're talking to, whoever your audience is, I think that that sense that they're just not going to believe me is new. Yeah. No, I agree with you. 
I agree with you. We're already beginning to experience that. I was talking to somebody earlier today about we had a situation. Scott Ritter, who was the the, the uh, uh, arms inspector, we had him scheduled to come on our program, and and he got caught in traffic in New York, and a rainstorm didn't make it to the studio in New York. And so I said on the air, I'm sorry, we had planned to bring you an interview with Scott Ritter, but uh, we I didn't. Unfortunately, I didn't say got caught in the traffic. I just said we're not able to bring that interview to you. Uh, we're going to run a tape instead, or something like that. On the email. Overnight people accusing the government of having come in and censored us. In other words, expecting the worst, suspecting the very worst that there's a conspiracy. So bad. I mean, we'd already we rescheduled him immediately. But I had to go on the air the next night and say, for those of you, you know, whatever, the fact of the matter is the man got caught in traffic. And that's <laughs> the reason he wasn't on the program. But it's, they didn't trust uh, it, trust me or trust us, and I'm our program has as good a reputation as any in the world, and they didn't trust me when I just said, well, we, can, we, we can't bring it to you. They thought some conspiracy was afoot. And, and in the mix, we have the poor, the unlucky Pierre, the Pierre Salinger syndrome. Yes. Where he trusted too much what was on the Internet. Absolutely. Absolutely. But somebody's got to sort that out, and we're a long way from having done it. Now, I think everybody wants to sort of look over your shoulder and say, you know, what is a day in the life of Jim Lehrer like when he's doing the news hour? But I'd like you to kind of tell us that and compare it, I mean, you know, sort of technology-wise, to when you and uh, Robert McNeil first did McNeil Lair news hour. I mean, is it any different? And what oh, is it like? Oh, my goodness, yes. And technology it plays a big role in it. When we first started, this was... Nearly 25 years ago, uh, I don't know, he was in the New York office, I was in the Washington office, and we had the newscast came, you know, it was one broadcast, and what we would do is each of us would write our copy, and we had a fax machine that we would send the copy back and forth and back and forth, and the fax machine never worked, it was thermal paper, you know, the whole thing just, you know, it was a mess, and, and many times we came very close to not even making it on the air because we couldn't get things back, and then, because every piece of copy then had to be retyped for prompter, because it didn't come out of our, of, of our typewriters in a way that could be used on the prompter. Now, then we, about 12 years ago, I guess, we went, we computerized, and you write something, you just write it once, and you push a button, and it can be printed out in everybody's printer, in everybody's office and whatever, and then it can be reprinted in a form that fits the prompter. It, we have now have a computer right there by the prompter downstairs in the studio, so you can change things literally while you weren't on the air. In the past, to change a piece of copy was like, oh, my goodness, it was like doing something at the National New York Public Library. It was just awful, just at the time that was, that was eaten up doing all of that. And what it's made, it's made all of us much more, much leaner, in a way, uh, intellectually as well as uh, physically, because all of the all the physical energy that went in to doing what was basically physical work, you know, typing things really fast and then ripping them out of typewriters and and throwing away carbon books and all that sort of all that's been eliminated. It's eliminated noise, the the rat rat tat, rat tat tat and the running and the screaming and all of that sort of stuff. And it's made it uh, easier for us to turn on a dime when news breaks. 
uh, because we know things have happened and we know what to do about them quicker because we're not occupied with a lot of physical, mechanical things that we used to be occupied with. Uh, for instance, uh, now we no longer have New York, but we have, an, uh, we have Elizabeth Farnsworth works out of San Francisco. We have an office in Denver. We have every our editorial meetings. They are plugged in. Uh, to our morning editorial meeting, just like we're in the same room. And uh, this is all in the past. It would take a half an hour just to get a conference call set up. And all of that, I mean, it's a small thing, but over a period of five days, it's not a very small thing, and it's even a larger thing over a period of 30 days. And all of this has gone to make make it possible for us to devote our energies to what we should be devoting them to, which is to what we write and what we say on the air. Well, Jim, this has really been delightful, and... and, uh... I can't believe that someone who who admits that he knows nothing about sex actually was the guy who had to ask the president. I know. It's oh, tough. I, I didn't even know what his answers were. I didn't know what they meant. <laughs> well, that's great, Jim. I appreciate it. <laughs> you come back and see us anytime. Will do. Thank you. My guest today is NewsHour's Jim Lair. His new novel is called Purple Dots. It's published by Random House. You're listening to Tech Nation, Americans and Technology. With an on-air journalism career which spanned six decades, Jim Lair passed away on January 23, 2020. Today on Biotech Nation, the subject is cancer, better detection, simple blood tests, and new approaches for treatment. First, I speak with Dr. Wendy Alderton, manager of the Early Detection Program at Cancer Research UK at Cambridge University, and Dr. Mike Fisher, commercial director of Oncommune. Well, Mike and Wendy, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Great to be here. Wendy, let me start with you. When diagnosing cancer, does it matter what cancer it is or are all cancers the same? That's a good question. There are certain cancers which tend to be diagnosed later because the symptoms are very vague and you can't tell you've got cancer or it's hidden deep within the body. And when cancer is diagnosed at a late stage, the survival statistics are much, much worse. You're much more likely to die. So examples of that are pancreatic cancer. It's well known to be a silent, deadly killer. Esophageal cancer, liver cancer, brain cancer. Um, There are some cancers like breast cancer because of big screening efforts they and because you can actually feel them in the breasts they're easier to detect earlier and there's been a lot of progress in different treatments for breast cancer so yes there are some priority cancers where if we can make inroads in detecting them early we'll help we'll we'll be saving lives now, Mike, at Oncommune, I know that you're developing and attempting to commercialize uh, a number of, of diagnostics for cancer. Uh, and your first are lung and liver. How prevalent are they? So lung, is, lung cancer is the largest cancer killer. Um, it's very prevalent, um, mainly in smokers, but not necessarily all. Um, it's one of the diseases, as Wendy says, that's uh, a silent killer. The symptoms it's, it's don't... In, it's buried in the body. It's buried so in the body. It. It's deep in the lungs. Um, the symptoms don't appear until later stages. So around 75% of lung cancers that are, de- by the time they're detected, are at late stage when treatment options are, are less and, and survival is lower. So we've developed a blood test that can help with that to try and 
identify those cancers a lot earlier so we can pick them up at stage one and two rather than you know rather than the later stages liver cancer is another one of those diseases um that's again is is generally picked up late stage um it's more in patients that have viral infections, that type of disease. So it lends itself more to an Asian population where you've got a high prevalence of HCV, HBV. Um, and again, it's very difficult to actually find those patients that have the cancer that you can treat very quickly and, and, and earlier. So they've had viruses earlier in their life. Yes. And that virus then is, is a risk factor for developing the cancer. Wendy, you're researching many of these areas uh, that have don't have any tests in them yet. You're trying to figure that out. How important is it uh, to have this early diagnosis? Yes, so Cancer Research UK, which is um, Europe's largest independent funder of cancer research, has done some statistics and looked across eight different types of cancers. And if you're diagnosed early, which is stages one and two, there's an 81% chance you'll still be alive in 10 years after that cancer. But if you're diagnosed at stages three and four, you, there's only 26% of those people who will be still alive after 10 years. So there's a really dramatic uh, effect on survival from cancer if you can catch it at a stage where surgery alone may be curative. That's the gold standard that we're working towards, that the cancer is still localised in one place and can be removed and before it's spread to other parts of the body. Now, Oncommune is working primarily in blood tests. Are you looking at other kinds of tests? So at Cambridge University at the Cancer Research UK Centre, we're looking to partner technologists, physicists, mathematicians, engineers with clinicians in the hospitals we have in, on the Cambridge Biomedical Campus to come up with lots of new innovative innovative ideas um, for many, many different ways of tackling what is this enormous problem. So certainly blood tests is one of the areas we're working in, but also new ways of imaging with clever endoscopes, different types of machine learning and any, any new exciting academic research that can be applied to this really important area. What's the most promising at this point? We won't hold it to you if it turns out to not be promising. But what, what area of research here is, is promising and new in your field? So Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald, who's the leader of the Early Detection Programme, has developed a cytosponge. And it's basically a pill on a string that you swallow into your stomach. It then expands into a sponge and is drawn up through the esophagus, uh, your, wind, your, your food pipe. And when it does that, it captures cells, which then can be looked at to see if there's a cancer present. So under it's a the very, microscope. Um, by histology under the microscope. So it's a very, very simple test. It can be done in a GP surgery. It can be done all around the world without needing lots of high-tech instrumentation. Um, and that's currently in a large 14,000-person clinical trial. And it's looking promising to detect Barrett's esophagus, which is the precursor to esophageal cancer, which is one of these very hard-to-detect and hard-to-treat cancers. You got 14,000 people to swallow a pill on a string. <laughs> that in itself is reportable. But it is also so, it really is innovative. It's like, how do we get this to do it in a way that nobody's really thought about before? It's just not common. That's right, yes. 
Mike, you've gotten these tests approved. What does it take to be approved? It's one thing to be in research, but it's another thing to have these tests approved that you can use. What do you have to do for that? So it depends what you mean by approval and for for what. So our lung cancer test is the most mature of, of our products in our pipeline. Um, in Europe, we've CE marked that, so it's approved for sale. Um, in the US, we're providing the test as a service, but we, in in the US, we actually can we promote the test for people with lung nodules. So these are already identified as having some sort of shadow or lump on the lung, some activity we, going on. Yeah, so there's already a detection of of, of something that's suspicious. If you want to go for screening, then you then have to do very large clinical studies. Um, So probably in lung cancer, you're looking at around 50,000 people in a clinical trial over five to six years, something like that, to then prove that there's a mortality benefit in that population. So you can actually screen patients who are asymptomatic. There's no symptoms whatsoever. You don't, you know, there's a small percentage of... I could come and take a blood test today and say, you know what we found? Yes. Yeah. But you've got no symptoms whatsoever. So that's that's where you want to get to. So we're approved for use in the US and, and in Europe, but... You know, there's more to be done to prove the mortality benefit. And that's what we're working on now in Scotland. So in Scotland, we've just completed a 12,000-person clinical trial with our tests, where if they're positive by our test, they then go for a CT scan, which then identifies the, the nodule on the lung, and it, it's then they can go for treatment. Um, and then the next stage is to do a much larger study with... We're, we're negotiating, negotiating at the moment, but we're hoping for something like 200,000 people over two years. So you would think that if, if it works out and you can demonstrate that you can find these cancers early, since 80% of the people who, diagnosed with lung cancer didn't find out until later, and yep. it's already at stage three or four, yep. that if you could make it routine... Yes. Then, in fact, you could actually change the course, flip that around so 20% uh, are discovered their stage four and 80% find it early when it's treatable. Yeah. So our interim results from the study, that were, we, the 12,000 people study uh, in Scotland were 75% of the diagnoses we made were stage one and two. So exactly as you say, we flipped it around. So 25% late stage. 75% early stage, which is great. And um, we're very encouraged by that. So, you know, obviously we're going to take that forward as as, as uh, fast as we can. One of the reactions people have in this stage four diagnosis of lung cancer is that it's, they don't understand why it's inoperable. It's, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And it's because by the time a cancer is at stage four, it has spread throughout the body. So cells are shed from the the primary tumour in the lung and then appear elsewhere in the body. So by that time, you can't do surgery because you can't get to every it's site. It's everywhere. You can't get to all those sites. Um, but if you can capture it when it's localised, it's just in one tumour or you know one or two in, in the lung, you can then, you know, a person can live with one lung if you have to, you know. So... That's curative, potentially. 
Whereas once it's spread throughout the body, really the only way to do something about it is through chemotherapy or radiotherapy, that type of thing. So you can systemically deliver something to get rid of those tumors. So, Right. Uh, now, what tests are you looking to develop? What's in your pipeline, Mike? So we've got lung now. Our second test um, is liver cancer. We've just launched that from our laboratory here in Kansas in the States. Um, And we're developing that into a kit that can be distributed around the world to different labs. Um, So that should be available by the end of this year. Um, Further in the pipeline, there is um, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer etc so we're we're committed to releasing another three tests so we'll have five tests by the end of 2021. Wendy you are early stage try anything (laughs) every good idea we like where do you see the trends in trying to find new tests How how does that look to you? So we're spending a lot of time in Cambridge thinking about risk stratification. So the conventional screening programmes, for example, mammography for breast cancer is every woman over 50 or 55, depending on which country you're in. Um, But it's really important to think about which women are much higher risk of getting breast cancer and which women are lower risk. So you can tailor the screening strategy they go for, so particularly to reduce overdiagnosis. So in breast cancer, many small lesions are found called ductal carcinoma in situ that may never actually go on to become breast cancers. So women are having um, breasts removed and having surgery on indolent tumours, and it's actually the same in prostate cancer. There are many indolent tumours where the person will die of something else before they die of the cancer, and it's really important to, to find out which are the aggressive cancers and which are the indolent ones. But also if you can marry that up with doing more frequent screening at someone who's in high risk and much less frequent screening or maybe no screening in someone who's calculated to have a very low risk, then you can tailor the screening programmes much better to the individual and hopefully outweigh the harms that you get from overdiagnosis with benefits of detecting cancers earlier. But there's lots of efforts looking at the genetics, looking at lifestyle factors, looking at family histories to really understand which people may go on to develop cancer more, more quickly than other people and be more susceptible to it. Well, Wendy and Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very Pleasure. much. It's great being here. Dr. Wendy Alderton is the manager of the Early Detection Program at Cancer Research UK at Cambridge University. And Dr. Mike Fisher is commercial director of Oncommune. More information is available on the web at oncommune.com. That's O-N-C-I-M-M-U-N-E, oncommune.com. We keep hearing about many cancer breakthroughs, but we also continue to hear about failures in treatment with new and improved drugs. Dr. Arthur Sands is the CEO of Nurex Therapeutics. Well, Arthur, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you a question that is a, it's a general question that many of us wonder about. Why do cancer treatments, why do we hear that they work for a while and then they don't? Well, very common problem. It has to do with resistance mutations forming in the cells of the cancer. And through time, uh, unfortunately, 
cancer recurs very frequently because the cells are dividing and they're getting out of balance with regard to their protein management of their own protein levels. So mutation is the common thread between recurrence, uh, recurrences of cancer. And also resistance then comes with that. So resistance to current therapies. And that's why we work on new therapies and new ways of targeting those proteins that need to be taken down and needed to be corrected uh, in the cancer cell. You're taking a different approach? Yes. So typically, drugs will inhibit a particular protein for a certain period of time. And you stop taking the drug and it wears off and the bad protein comes back and is causing trouble, causing the cell to divide and the cancer to grow. Our approach uh, targets the protein for destruction. So we actually eliminate the protein completely from the cell using the cell's own mechanisms for doing so, which often become broken. Uh, but we can make and we've made small molecules that can Eating be pills. pills that can be taken orally that can restore that natural balancing effect that the cell normally needs to control its growth and proliferation. So if we can restore that in a cancer cell and eliminate the mutated proteins that have become resistant to the old drugs, the new drugs offer hope. What is the healthiest way a cell likes to operate normally, and can we restore that? This goes right to the heart of the problem, which is what's broken in the cell and how do we fix it? Better yet, how do we get the cell's own repair machinery to work again? So it offers, again, a lot of hope that this will be a more natural therapeutic approach. It is a pharmaceutical intervention still, and it really could lead to the end of resistance in cancer, the end of recurrence. I mean, that's the hope. We have to prove that. But if we could, you know, I'd like to say resistance is futile if we take this <laughs> approach. I hope anyway. Now, when you say by fix that, are you inserting new DNA? What are you doing? So, no, we're not genetically changing the cell. We're using a small molecule that will go in oral, again, can be taken by mouth, and will enter the cell and harness the cell's own machinery that is broken to restore the protein balance, i.e. it will take out proteins that are in excess. If there's too much of them that are fostering growth, uh, many oncogenes or oncoproteins stimulate cell division. Stimulate, they tell the cell, divide, 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 and which is the wrong answer. And so we can destroy that protein. We can eliminate it. And we are not going to hit the normal cells is the ideal. Now, in certain situations, you do, in fact, not only want to take out the protein, destroy that protein, but you do want that cancer cell to die. But it's a question of how does it die? Does it die in a very messy way that hurts a lot of other cells and other organs? Does it die or get arrested in a very specific way? And that's the goal of this, this approach. And, and this generally is called targeted protein degradation is the general scientific term for it. Now, I know your initial focus will be on lymphoma and leukemia. Why those? So lymphoma and leukemia are, uh, you know, first of all, very, very common. And we know a lot about which proteins are out of balance there. The genetic studies are quite advanced, and so it gives us, it's given us Nurex great starting points. We know where to look, where to hit, where to go in and try to correct the cell. In addition, for a new 
type of drug like this. Uh, it's very um, it's very powerful to work on the blood system, the hematopoietic system, because you can tell exactly what's going on very quickly through a blood draw. Because this um, lymphomas and leukemias are cancers of the blood; they're they're liquid tumors. So we can monitor those easily. Now the hope is after that we'll go into solid tumors, breast, colon, and hopefully brain cancers. All theoretically could be approached with this type of technology. Now, this is early stage. Preclinical mm-hmm. have not gone into humans yet. Uh, how much do you feel you need to see preclinically before you move to the human stage? So our, our goal is to see uh, basically tumor remission preclinically in, in mouse models of, of human cancer to see that we are actually, uh, you know, curing the mice, if you will. Now, these are not the typical sort of, um, of tumor models that are used. These are tumor models that are very much aligned with the human cancer. And, mm-hmm. and these are sort of a new generation of models. I won't go necessarily into all the details of that. But the um, – because, you know, scientists have cured cancer in mice for a long time, as people like to criticize. <laughs> and the mice are thrilled about it. And they, yes, but <laughs> why doesn't it translate to better cures for humans? It's a very common question and a big concern. The, the, the point, though, is that you have to start there. And if you can cure an animal, you have at least a chance. And so that's why we still look for that before we go into human. There's another approach that I, I'd also like to tell you about, which is uh, sort of related and the flip side of this protein degradation, which is blocking the degradation of proteins. Mm-hmm. So there are good proteins in our, in our cells that, uh, we, that can get destroyed by tumor cells, and we want those back. So we want to be able to block the degradation in that circumstance. Uh, this in particular is an immunotherapy program that we're working on, where by blocking the degradation of certain proteins in the blood, we can stimulate the immune system so that the body's own immune uh, surveillance or immune uh, cells can kill the cancer. So this is a big area. There, there are drugs already approved in this area that work differently from what I'm describing. But it is an, an area that holds great promise, again, because it's more of a natural way to get the body to cure itself. Well, Arthur, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again. I would love to. Thank you. Dr. Arthur Sands is the CEO of Nurex Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at nurextx.com. That's N-U-R-I-X-T-X.com. Nurextx.com. For Biotechnation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web 
at technation.com. Technation and Biotechnation are productions of Technation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.